Praise the Lord, promise of victory. Welcome to Warning Signs. If you're new here, first of all, thank you for being here. Let's give our first-time guests a round of applause. We appreciate you for being here so much. And if you're new here and you're not sure what is going on, Warning Signs is a fall sermon series that I have been uh, concentrating on every Sunday morning uh, for the last, this will be part six. So we're going to take a break next week, of course, because Pastor Hodges will be preaching. But uh, I'll pick back up with it the following week, and it's going to be several weeks later. It has morphed into something uh, I didn't intend for it to be when I first started this series, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that as I start the sermon. But if you're wondering what it's all about, warning signs. We're, we're trying to read the signs that will cause us to have uh, better lives, uh, that, that will uh, keep us out of problems and out of harm's way. Part of the introduction that you just saw said the only signs that will hurt you are the ones you refuse to either read or follow. And so I'm trying to give you some signs. And in week one, I gave you some pictures on the wall because uh, I'm as country as cornbread, and, and you, you don't know that. I've become sophisticated since I've moved up here, and I've learned how to say words like Ohio, because I'm from the county in West Virginia, and down there, it's Ohio, and I moved up here, and I did not fit in, and everybody would ask me, where are you from? So I started changing my language, and now when I go home and visit, they say, ooh, listen to Mr. Fancy. So I often say after 22 years, by the way, there was a lot of mistakes made up here on dates and stuff. We've been here 22 years, not 23. I thought he was asking me something else, which that information was also wrong. I was giving him the wrong information all the way around. So we've been here 22 years, and after 22 years, I, no longer, I still don't fit in here because people here still say, you have an accent. And then when I go home, they say, ooh, listen to your accent. I'm in linguistic purgatory. I don't fit in here, I don't fit in there, but I, I, when I was growing up on Grandpa's farm, there was a lot of signs, and we always had signs for everything, and I mentioned several of those on week one, and one of the signs I showed you at week one was um, this critter that we often, uh, yeah, does anybody know what that is? Caterpillar, y'all call it a caterpillar, where I'm from, it's a woolly worm. And I told you that week one, uh, that, that one of the signs of this critter was the more black it had on it, the harder the winter, right? Some of y'all are country too. Well, I want to show you a picture of what I found on my way to church this morning. I thought it was awful ironic that this was on my sidewalk when I was walking out to the car to come to church this morning. I said, well, there's a sign. It's not a good sign. It's an awful sign. It's a terrible sign. Uh, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to believe that sign, so we're going to rebuke that in the name of Jesus and all the angels. Because that thing was all black. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to believe that that is our destiny and our future. No, sir. The devil is a lie. So we're going to talk this morning about uh, it's a trap. The name of my sermon this morning is It's a Trap. We have many people that are out this morning. I know Flora could not be here, so she, she's sick, which means Seth couldn't come because she's, the, uh, she's his ability to understand the, the, um, the message. So uh, 
we also couldn't have our special needs class because Bobby Jean is sick. Pastor Amy hurt her back. She's out. So we got a lot of people. There's sickness going around. These kids go back to school, and, and they pick up these little bugs, and they bring them back home, and they share them with everybody. And so uh, this is the time of the year where pumpkin spice latte and germs are going around. See, Jesus and germs are everywhere. So you always got to be uh, minding your uh, P's and Q's. And so this morning I'm going to talk about it's a trap. And I told you that this sermon series has taken a shift. It, I didn't intend for it to be about David. I'm going to be honest with you. The way that this has all manifested itself and going forward is just going to continue to manifest itself. I did not intend for it to be about David. I, I wasn't purposely trying to timeline his entire life, but that's what it has turned out to be. And I'm going to be honest with you. Beginning this morning and for the next couple of weeks, these sermons are going to be very personal. They're going to, because we're going to start looking at David, up until this point, David has been one thing. He's been happy, he's been victorious, he's been a warrior and a musician and a psalmist, but starting today, and actually beginning last week, but you didn't notice it because I'm going to tie it in later, we started seeing David's life begin to take a turn that it's not going to look like the first half of what we've already looked at. So David's story is going to get really personal, and we're going to learn that David wasn't just a giant killing machine and the, the harp player for the first Christian worship band. Actually, we're going, to, we're going to look about David's life having some hard times coming ahead. And many of the hard, many of the hard times David is going to live through is not because of Saul, not because of hell and its minions, not because of Satan himself, but because of what David chose to do. Many of David's difficulties was brought on by David's choices. And the reason it's going to get so personal is because we're going to look at the fact that many of our difficulties that we like to blame the devil for, or we like to blame our ex-husband and ex-wife, or we like to blame our boss at work, or we like to blame the president, or we like to blame the pastor for, actually are in our lives because of the choices we've made. We're going to talk about that at great length. We're going to begin this morning looking at some hard times. We're going to pick David up this morning in a cave. As a matter of fact, the timeline that we're uh, pursuing, again, this is all new. I didn't intend to have a timeline of David's life. I went to Kristen and I said, I think I need to do this. Uh, I think we just need to track David. I didn't intend for this sermon series to be so tied up in David's life, but then we decided we'll just do this. So this morning we're in the cave of Adullam. I want you to pay attention to that name because that name means something that will be pertinent to this message, the cave of Adullam. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22, but we're also going to be in the book of Psalms. And I'm going to tie both of those things together. I'm going to, read. I'm going to be back and forth, back and forth. If you're a note taker, uh, you're going to stretch your limits this morning. Because of how often we're going to jump back and forth, back and forth. If you like to follow along in your Bible, good luck. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David left Gath. He left Gath. Pay attention to that. I'll get back to that in a moment. He left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now stop right there. Stop reading right there. I know there's more to the verse, but stop right there. 
I've been trying to show you that David's story is a lot like your own story. It's very complicated. When I first got saved, I got saved in the little country church, in the old-timey church, in the old holiness church, and they made it seem like walking a Christian life is very black and very white. This is right and this is wrong. This is God's way and this is the world's way, and all of that is true. However, your life is not black and white. Your life has a lot of shades of gray thrown in. Because as much as you want to chase God, you run into difficult problems that the Bible doesn't directly address. It doesn't tell you in the Bible what to do when you get laid off. It doesn't tell you in the Bible who to marry. Wouldn't it wouldn't it been great if there's a book of shoulda beens in there? That you could just go over there anytime you need direction and it'll tell you where to work and where to go to college and what street to buy your house on and who to marry and who to hook up with. I mean, that would be great. That book of shoulda beens should have been in there. However, your life has ups and downs. I told you a few weeks ago, it's very much like riding a roller coaster. Once you're strapped in, baby, you're in for the ride. It doesn't matter if you cry, if you scream your head off, if you lose some of the functions of your body. It don't make any difference. That ride's going to come to an end when it decides to. And that's the way your life is. It's up, down, it's twists, it's turns, it's, it's going sideways. And so far, we've looked at David being a shepherd. We've looked at David being a singer and a psalmist, and a harp player, and a musician, and a soldier. David has been a fighter, but we're about to encounter David's down season, where he's going to be a sinner, and he's going to be broken, and he's going to encounter some hard times. And if you've been paying attention, we have tracked David since he was a teenage boy, keeping his father's sheep. And he stayed out in the field, slept with the sheep, watching the herd. But then King Saul found out that David had a special touch with the harp and that, that, that evil spirit that was inside of him would lay down whenever David played the harp. And, and the anointing would calm that evil down. And, and so David moved into the king's palace with Saul, right? Now, now on the timeline, David is running from King Saul. He had to leave everything behind. He moved out of the palace and moved into a cave. Hmm. I, I, I want to say that again. He was living in the palace. And because the enemy had him on the run, he ended up living in a cave. Do you know how hard it is for a pastor to watch his people that God has given him charge over start running from the devil and knowing that once the devil gets them running, he will not stop until they're cave dwelling. One of the most difficult things about being a pastor is not the attacks. It's, it's not. I mean, we, yes, they're hard and they're difficult and they're hard on the family and it does make us question our calling at times. But one of the hardest things about being a pastor is watching people who know better. Watching people you have counseled, watching people you have preached to, watching people you have prayed with in the altar, get on the run because we know, and everybody else watching their life knows, that once the devil gets you running, he will not let up until he has you from the palace to the cave. And now Saul is on the run and he's forced into the only place he can find shelter. He left everything behind Saul is threatening him, wants him dead, 
And he moved out of the palace and into a cave. And not just any cave. The Bible says he moved into the cave of Adullam. And that cave, Adullam, means the place of the squeeze. Has anybody in here ever felt like you moved from one season that was pretty good to a place and a season where you just feel squeezed? Is there anybody under the sound of my voice that life was going pretty good and you, was, you were celebrating the Lord and the goodness of the Lord and, and now you've moved into a place where all of a sudden from the left, from the right, from the up, from the down, and from every direction you just feel squeezed? Now, I want you to pay attention because we're going to talk about this cave. A cave in Old Testament times was usually used for one main purpose, to bury the dead. And Jews in the Old Testament were forbidden from touching dead bodies. So nobody would willingly run into a cave. This is how desperate you get when you start running from the enemy. This is how, this is, you will touch dead things. Oh my God in heaven, I, I don't even have time to preach this the way I want to this morning. You'll start living with dead things. You'll start touching dead things. You'll become comfortable around dead things when you once dwelt with the king in the palace. And now you're comfortable among the dead things. Nobody would voluntarily move into a cave. This was not the four seasons. It was damp. It was dark, it was musty, gloomy, depressing, and full of death. And this is where David is. Now if you'll turn in your Bibles over to Psalm chapter 142. Why Psalm 142? Because this psalm was written by David while he was in this cave. While David was in the cave of Adullam, he wrote Psalm 142. This is a prayer that he prayed in the cave and at some point went back and wrote it down. Psalm 142 verse 1 says this, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. Stop right there. Stop right there. That does not shock me at all for him to say, God, I need your mercy. That 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 don't bother me because I also need God's mercy. I also ask God for mercy. So, so far, me and David, the fact that he's in a cave, the fact that he's in a depressing place, the fact that he's in a dark, musty place of death, and he's crying out for mercy, I'm with David. But verse 2 kind of makes me wonder. He says, I pour out my complaints before God and tell him all my troubles. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me. I look for someone to come and help me. But no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Why does verse 2 hit me the way it hits me? I'll tell you why. Because this is David. This is Psalm 142. All you mathematicians out there, does the number 34 come before 142? Yes, that wasn't a pop quiz. I'm glad I got two people that knows their numerology. Verse Psalm 34, David wrote this. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. David wrote that psalm before he wrote this psalm. And in this psalm, he says, out of my mouth come my complaints. I look at David in Psalm 142 and I say, David, you ain't allowed to do this. Because you're David. You're the one that told me that ain't nothing supposed to be coming out of my mouth except praise. And it it bothered me. It it, It set me back because I said, this is David. David told me that the only thing in my mouth is supposed to be praise. And here he's saying, I bring my complaints before God. And then it hit me. Of course he got his complaints out. Because before I can fill it with praise... I got to get the mess that's already in there out. I got to empty out a space. If I'm going to have the stuff that's supposed to be in there, in there, it's got to have room to move. Somebody better say amen. Uh huh. So, see, a lot of us have this idea that if we can't come to God the right way, we won't come to God at all. And so, when you get down and you're in a cave, you feel so discouraged and so guilty and so full of shame, you don't come to God at all. You shut God out. The one who can help you. The one that can bless you. You stop coming to church. You stop reading your word. You stop praying in the spirit. You, you stop worshiping. Why? Because you feel like I'm not fit. I'm not worthy to be in his presence. I have things inside of me that I don't understand. I, I've got things I'm complaining about. I've got things that I'm discouraged about. But I was surprised to see David pour out his complaint because I was taught in the old church that I'm not allowed to complain because God's been too good to me. So I was surprised to hear David tell me that, but I also got to thinking about where else would I go? Of course I better bring my complaints to God. Where else am I going to take them? Facebook? Complaining to my wife don't help. Complaining about the government doesn't fix it. Complaining online doesn't help anything. Going into forums, even if you're anonymous, it don't help you. Where else am I going to go? We used to sing the old song, where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking salvation for my soul. Well, I, I want you to understand this morning that the only way that you can get into the presence of God... It's not waiting to get there, but it's to enter in from right where you are. So if you're in a cave, that's where you enter into his presence. You can't wait to get back to church. You can't wait for your life to straighten up. You can't wait to get unshackled and unbound. Right where you are, that's where you enter into his presence. So you might have to enter. Boy, I'm just going to be transparent up here. If you don't know me, get ready. Because there are some times that I have had to worship my way into his presence, talk my way into his presence, pray my way into his presence, when I was really wanting to throw some hands. I mean, I have been carnal trying to get myself into God's presence. 
I've gotten so mad, so angry, so upset, I was ready to bust some heads. And yet I knew right then I was vulnerable and I needed to get myself into his presence before I acted out what was already in my, happening in my head. So when you're hurting, when you're abandoned, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, that's where you come in his presence. You don't wait to get out of the cave. You bring him into it. I wish I had a witness in this church. So David gives me this permission right here in this scripture. If David did it, so can I. I can pour out my complaint in God's presence. I can unburden myself. And it took me a long time to learn this because I always had to fight what was going on in my mind. And here's where I went wrong and maybe you have too. I always try to fight what's in my mind, in my mind. But notice what David just taught us, and I hope you get this. David just taught us that I don't fight my mind with my mind. I fight what's going on in my mind with what comes out of my mouth. Did you hear what he said? He said, I pour out my complaints. So I got complaints up here. I got complaints in here. I can't fight that battle here. I've got to fight that battle here. So I have to speak things that are not even though they are as, as if they already were. I've got to confess what I'm praying for because I don't battle what's up here, up here. I battle what's up here with this. Why? Why is that? I'm glad you asked. Because my mind can wander a thousand different places. Some of y'all right now ain't even hearing what I'm saying because your mind's already at work tomorrow. Your mind's at whatever you're going to eat for lunch today. You're not hearing what I'm saying now. Your mind is wandering, and you're going to wander back in. and You're going to do the spiritual hokey pokey all Sunday morning. You put your whole self in. You take your whole self out. It's going to happen over and over and over again. Your mind can wander a thousand different directions, but you can only say one thing at a time. So your tongue is focused. Your tongue has purpose. That's why James tells us it's an unruly member. It's like a rudder of a ship. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. It is, it is that one thing that guides the whole existence of you. Out of the tongue speaks life and death. Why? Because it is totally purposeful. Whatever you speak, it's the only thing you can speak at that time. So you battle with your mouth what's happening in your psyche. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel 22. We're going to look at verse 1 again, but we're going to read more of it. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David has been hiding from Saul in a place called Gath. Do you know why that's significant? You may not know it, but Gath is where Goliath. You remember Goliath? You heard of Goliath? Gath is where Goliath was from. Gath is where his last enemy was from. The last enemy David defeated was in a place called Gath. And David is hiding from his present enemy where he defeated his last... So he's hiding in a place that he does not belong. Listen, listen. Do you, do you remember last Sunday if you were here? David went to a, a temple in Nob. What I didn't tell you about that story was while he was there, the priest didn't just give him showbread. He also took the sword of Goliath. So now he left Nob and went to Gath. He's in Gath carrying around Goliath's sword. 
David's not real popular. Their warrior died at David's hands. And David is showing off the soap. David don't fit in where he is, but he don't fit in where he was. Does anybody know what it feels like not to fit in nowhere? I mean, is there any, am I the only one in this room? He's not real popular in Gath. He's running from the enemy, but he's hiding in a place that is not safe for him to hide. Do you ever feel like you don't fit in where you came from anymore? Thank God you don't fit in there anymore. But you also don't quite fit in where you're at. I, listen, I told you I'm transparent. Welcome to Bishop. I have been way too churchy for too long to fit in with the world. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes my skin crawl. I don't like it. I have no appetite for it. I am way too churchy to be worldly. However, I ain't churchy enough for some churches. There are churches that I have been in that I knew I wasn't churchy enough for their liking. That's why I'm glad I go to that church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Be because David, David flees Gath. Listen to what the scripture said. He escapes to Adullam. Say escapes. He escapes. Everybody has a way that they escape. Every person in this room has a way that you like to escape. It could be fishing. It could be Amazon shopping. It, it could be going to the gym. It could be baking cakes. But everybody has a way of escape. What is a way of escape? Just for a little while, you put your situation behind you and you focus on something else. But here's your warning sign. The place you escape to could lead you into greater captivity. That's why it's so important for you to read the signs where you're running toward. Because sometimes the thing you're escaping to becomes bondage. What you're running to ends up running you. David escaped from the land of Gath, but he ran into a cave, which is something he became trapped in. And now I understand why David wrote Psalm 142, and he says, I pour out my complaints. Now I know what he's complaining about. David is supposed to be the king. Do you remember Samuel showing up at Jesse's house and pouring the oil over his head and saying, you're going to be the king? And instead of living in the palace, he's trapped in a cave. But here's... Here's the rest of the story, and this is what you need to hear. Nobody made David go into that cave. No enemy forced David into the cave. The Bible says David escaped into the cave of Adullam, which means there was other places available. But this is what he chose to do. And listen to what he said when he was in that cave. Verse 4, I look for somebody to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Here's what David does in the cave. He said, I'm not surprised that the enemies that surround me 
What I'm surprised by is that my friends don't. David says, I'm not surprised that I got people against me. What I'm surprised about is I don't have nobody for me. David looks around this cave in Psalms 142, and he said, I'm not surprised that there's folks trying to kill me. What I'm surprised about is nobody's trying to help me. Oh, me and David's the only one. Y'all going to leave us hanging like that? Have you ever looked around a room and been surprised at how little help you had? Like, 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 where's the people I helped? Have you ever been down and you looked around and said, where's all the people I prayed for? Where's all the people that I was supporting? That's what it's like to be a parent. I got news for you. It's what it's like to be a pastor too. That I've poured out and poured out. And where's the people willing to pour something back in? And, and from reading Psalm 142, you look at David and you're like, man, he must have been lonely. It says he looks around and there's nobody there to help him. And, and you start feeling sorry for David because he's all alone in the cave. But you keep reading 1 Samuel 22. In verse 1, David is in the deepest place of despair, not because he's surrounded by trouble, but because he can't find Support. He's in a cave looking for a support system. And David said, I look around and nobody was there. Remember that? Psalm 142 said, I looked around and nobody was there. But that's not true because look at verse 1. So David left Gath, escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. So he was surrounded. But there's a difference between being surrounded and feeling supported. And David cried out. Remember Psalm 142? We're tying both of these things together because it's happening at the same time. Remember Psalm 142? It's a prayer. He's praying to God. He said, God, I've looked around this cave, and I've got nobody to help me. God said, okay, I hear your cry, David. Here's you some help. Verse 2. Then others began coming. Thanks, God. Men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until the, David was the captain of about 400 men. I don't care how big this cave is, it's got to be getting crowded with 400 people. Especially with 400 broke, <laughs> disgruntled, unhappy, depressed men. I don't care how big this cave is, it ain't big enough. Somebody say amen. Because what makes a bad environment even more unlivable is the people that you meet in the cave. Uh, and here's the problem. I'm going to get to the crux of this. I got a long list I'm going to go through, but I'm going to go through it quickly. All this is my introduction. <laughs> Again, welcome to Promise of Victory. Every person that came to that cave came there because they needed something from David. They didn't come there to offer David anything. They came there looking for David to do something for them. Have you ever had somebody who only calls you when they need something? Like as soon as you see the number, you're like, oh, that again. Anybody, does, does anybody else, or is that just, 
Like you know good and well, before you ever pick it up, you pick it up and they say, oh, hey, it's been a minute. And you really want to say, let's just skip all the preliminaries and get to what you want. I know you did not call just to make nice nice. I know you did not call to check on me and see how I'm doing. You need something. Why don't you just go ahead and spill it so I can decide whether I'm going to do it or not. Does anybody know that, what that feeling? So David's in a cave with 400 of these jokers. And notice that David did not say nobody came. He said nobody cares. He didn't say nobody came to me. He said nobody cares about me. Who really cares? Who really cares? Don't raise your hands, but if there's anybody in this room that's ever asked that question, this is what David's going through. If you have ever looked around your cave and said, if I did not feel this void in their life, would they care about me? If I did not provide for them, if I did not shelter them, if I did not perform this duty for them, would they even care about me? Every husband in this room can relate to this feeling. Every wife in this room can relate to this feeling. Every friend, I know every parent in this room, knows what it feels like to think, if I didn't do this X, Y, Z for them, would they even have... When's the last time they asked me how I feel? When's the last time they told me that they were thinking about me? Every parent in this room knows how David feels. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you this morning because I know every person in this room, whether you're in a cave now or you're headed toward one or you just came out of one, positionally, you're in one of those three places. And I don't want to focus on the cave because you choose the cave. You decided on that cave. I don't know what was so attractive about that cave that made you choose it, but you chose your cave. Quit blaming your ex-wife. Quit blaming your ex-husband. Quit blaming your ex-boss. Quit blaming the government. You chose that cave. There was a million places you could have ran. You ran into that cave. But what I want to focus on is the characters that you meet inside your cave. Because they have the craziest warning labels on medication. I took a, a nasal thing because I was feeling a little bit stuffy in my head. I took a nasal thing and I read on the back of it and it said, may cause itchy, watery eyes and a cough. I said, that's what I'm taking it for. I already got all that. Why would I take something for something that's going to give me the thing I'm trying to get away from? I mean, if you're taking an allergy medication, you don't want it to give you allergy. But I wish, warn, I wish uh, people came with warning signs. Because when you first meet somebody, I'm sure they look lovely. You, but all you see is what kind of shoes they're wearing, what their fit is, what kind of hairstyle they have. Maybe you smell their cologne. Maybe you hear what they say when they introduce yourself. But I wish they had a warning label on them like medication does. Warning. I'm irrational. I'm a big fat liar. I will misrepresent myself and you if you give me a chance. If you move me into your world, I'm undependable, I'm hateful, I got anger issues, I haven't held a job in 15 years. Nobody likes me for longer than 10 minutes. I mean, I wish you could just see it. Like they had to give you a business card. Like when somebody come up to you, you, you check them out and say, you look fine and all, but can I see your card? 
Who I allow into my life will directly influence the quality and direction of my life. That should be up here. People are like elevators. They're either taking you up or they're taking you down. You need people in your life that add and multiply to your life, not divide and subtract. So when you get into a cave and you are trapped because you escaped into a cave and now you are trapped, it's a trap. Look at your neighbor and say, it's a trap. Uh-huh. It's a trap. So the, the problem is not that you're there, but when you're there, you attract a certain group of people. The cave dwellers come to find you when you're in the cave. We ultimately will take on the ways of the people that we are closest to. Uh-huh. Oh, you don't believe me. That's why you need to read the warning signs of the people that you find in your cave. John 15 and 14, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, you, you will know if you're my friend if you obey me. In other words, here's what Jesus was saying. If you hang around me long enough, I'm going to rub off on you. You're going to act like me. You're going to talk like me. I will mark your life because... If you stick around me long enough, who I am will rub off on you. Well, other folks do that to you too. The people that you hook up with in the cave rub off on you. You talk like them, you act like them, eventually you will start thinking like them. I can tell I haven't convinced you yet. Let me, let me go one step further. When God wants to bless you, and I can show you this biblically, He sends a person. When the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy, he does the same thing. Your duty in the cave is to determine what they're here for. What business do you have with me? Why, Why are you here? Are you here to bless me or are you here to curse me? Because they're not all the same. Mm. So I'm going to go through a list of cave dwellers, characters that you meet in the cave. I'm going to give you a good, sound biblical piece of advice before I start this list. Don't look around. Especially if you're sitting with your husband or your wife. Don't look around. Keep your eyes up here. You'll stay out of trouble and we'll all get through this together in the name of Jesus. The first person that you meet in the cave is the grouch. Did you pay attention to that list of people? They were broke, they were discouraged, and overall despondent. These are the kind of people that you find in a cave. You did not read anywhere where they were wealthy, upbeat, and had a 10,000 kilowatt smile. These are the people you meet in a cave, the grouch. This is the chronically negative person. Don't raise your hands. Don't look around the room. Keep your eyes up here. On your free time, go back and read the book of Numbers, especially if you need help sleeping at night. But in the book of Numbers, God told His people, you absolutely are wearing me out with your complaining. He said you're grumbling Your negative attitudes, your grouchiness is wearing me out. And if you can wear God out, what are they going to do to you? (laughs) 
Like if God admitted, you are absolutely draining the life out of me. This is the same God that created everything in six days. And the grout sucks the air out of the room. And even God says, you're killing me, Smalls. If God gets more out of these people, you're not going to make it out of this cave alive. So be careful of the grouch. Man, I hope you're ready to get real. Because the next one is the bottomless pit of pessimism. Let's see how, how willing you are to be real right now. How many pessimists do we have in the house? Spouses of pessimists. Grab their arm and make them play along in my sermon illustration. It's just me, me and Tony. All the rest of y'all are hopeless optimists. You liars. You're a fibbing in the house of God. I've talked to too many of you. You act like we just met. Pessimist. You want to know why you're a pessimist? I'm going to help you. I've done a lot of studying on this because I am one. And, and I, 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 <laughs> the reason that you're a pessimist is because it's a defense mechanism. What happened was it, it protects you from disappointment. You got let down and you didn't like how that felt. So you decided... Instead of letting people just disappoint you, you're going to assume in the beginning they're already a disappointment. And that way when they disappoint you, you're not surprised by it. Hello? But what you don't know, let me help you, is that when you develop a pattern of pessimism neurologically in your brain and spiritually in your heart, then you hide behind a wall of pessimism. And it protects you, but it also traps you. Hear me, because you create the reality that you expected. I expected you to let me down. That means our whole relationship has been built on the idea that eventually you're going to let me down. That means I've never let that relationship mature. I've never let it grow because I'm just waiting for you to drop. I'm just waiting for you to disappoint. I'm just waiting on you to, to, to blow up. I'm waiting on you to walk out. I'm waiting on you to abandon me. So I have never been fully engaged in this. I've never been open. I've never been honest. I've never been vulnerable because I've been waiting for you to mess up. And when you finally messed up, I was able to say, see, I was right all along. But the problem was, one of the reasons you walked out was because I never let you in to start with. I never opened up. I was never vulnerable. I was never real with you. You are only looking for one possible conclusion. That everybody is rotten. So, you've been in 14 churches, and all 14 pastors is rotten. The government's rotten. You've had 14 bosses, they're all rotten. You've had 14 relationships, all of them are rotten. You're stalking them on Facebook so you can see how rotten they are. Now they got rotten kids with their new rotten wife. You're constantly looking for the next letdown. If you're in a cave with this person, they're always going to expect more from you than they're ever going to allow you to do for them. Because they're constantly pessimistic. Leads us to the next person, the critic. These are people who like to be your parent. 
And by that, I don't mean spiritual fathers and mothers. I'm talking about they sit in judgment of you. They want to criticize every move you make, every word you say. Sometimes they speak the truth, but the problem is speaking the truth without love is damaging. The Bible tells us to always speak the truth, but it tells us to speak the truth with, with love. That's right. So, so these people beat others down until they see it. Everybody has to see things my way. They're inflexible. They're incapable of seeing another viewpoint. Has this ever been more evident than since 2020? Listen, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be transparent with you because I've done it before. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. It makes absolutely no difference to me because at the end of the day, whether you were pro this, against that, you thought it was real, you thought it was false, it, you know what I found out? Every single person was 100% convinced they were right. It didn't matter what side. And to be honest with you, everybody can't be right. One whole side has to be totally wrong in order for the other side to be totally right. So, you got a 50-50 chance of being wise or a fool. I found out early on, if I just keep my mouth shut, nobody knows which side I'm on. So I just keep my big fat trap shut and make everybody wonder, is he wise or is he a fool? The world may never know. <laughs> but everybody's convinced they're right. So we get argumentative, and then we start criticizing. And here's the problem with you and me. The world can get away with that. But you and me, we're supposed to see them as souls. We're supposed to see them as children that need a father. We're supposed to see them as people who need to be ushered into the presence of the one who died for them. Because I don't know if you found this out or not, but it doesn't matter what side of the, uh, dem uh, the, the po political uh, side you're on or the, uh, whatever side of the, the, the virus side you're on or whatever side of anything you're on. Jesus died for both sides because he didn't choose sides. And we're supposed to treat other people, no matter what their difference of opinion is, without being a critic. 2 Timothy 2 and 16 has been in my spirit lately. Avoid godless chatter. Well, that just tells you to delete Facebook right there. Because those who indulge will become more and more ungodly. Again, what comes out of your mouth directs your life. A person that is constantly complaining about the church and about the pastor and about their work and about their government and about their neighbor and about their spouse, they are creating the environment that comes out of their mouth. Can I tell you that some people will judge you by your worst moments? And it won't matter how many positive moments you have, they will never let go of the worst thing you did. I read the story of a, a math teacher who came into the classroom and began to write 10 equations on the board. And the first one was 9 plus 1 equals 7. For you math majors, that's incorrect. 9 times 1 is not 7. Then she wrote 9 times 2 is 18, and 9 times 3 is 27, and so on and so forth until she got down to 9 times 10 is 90. And she wrote ten equations. And one of them was wrong. And when she turned around to the class, the class was snickering and making fun of her. And she said, the reason I wrote that equation incorrectly was because I wanted you to see how the world will treat you. You can get one thing wrong and nine things right. 
And all they'll ever remember is the one thing wrong that you did. That's the critic. And if that's in your cave, you might want to get baptized in the Holy Ghost this morning. The control freak. The control freak. This is the person that manipulates you emotionally. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about putting hands on you. I'm talking about people that emotionally manipulate you. Uh, you have to walk on eggshells around them because they will lash out at you, not necessarily violently or, or with hubris, but they will, they will hold you accountable in other ways. Sometimes the control freak operates in silence because it's called the silent treatment. They know that it hurts you, so they give you... I told y'all not to look around. Quit looking around. Stop it. Y'all going, uh, just take your notes and go home and pray. Don't be, don't be putting no labels on them right here in God's house. Sometimes a manipulator, a, a person that is uh, uh, the, the control freak will uh, guilt you into doing what they want you to do. Uh, sometimes they make you feel like I have to do this or I can't do that in order to keep peace in, in order to keep peace in the house I can't go here I can't do that or I have to do I have to do things this way just to have peace in the house they intimidate you even if they never raise their voice they get jealous of other relationships that don't include them they're a control freak. They belittle your voice. In other words, they'll make decisions for you and don't even ask you if you want to, if it's something you'd be interested in. They'll just make decisions on your behalf because they are con completely in control of your life. I'm going to move on. It's getting quiet in here. The next one is the flamethrower. This one is kicking it up a notch because now we're not doing the silent treatment. Now we're instigating stuff. This is the kind of person that we find in Proverbs 26 and 21. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire lights wood. A quarrelsome person. Somebody that you know is just going, don't raise your hands, but there are people that are in your cave that is attached to you, that hunted you down, and you know every time you talk to them, it's going to be a knockdown, drag out. That no matter where the conversation starts, it's going to end up back when you was 12, or back when mom left, or, or back when the divorce happened, or back when you quit that job. Uh, well, you know, you kids were never there for me when I need. It's always going to come back around. They're, they're quarrelsome, and they're always looking to instigate something. I'm going to help you because you can't help them. Okay? You, you can't. You can't help them. They are who they are, but you can help you. So let me give you a sound piece of advice. Are you ready? Every person emotionally carries around two buckets. One has water, and the other one has gasoline. And every conversation you engage in, you can choose what bucket to use on that conversation. And that has absolutely no difference how they're talking to you. Well, I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't talked to me like that. You let that in. You used your bucket of gasoline to light the flames. Did you hear what this scripture said? This scripture said that a quarrelsome person is like embers that catch things on fire. They can't catch you on fire if you don't let them. 
douse the flames. Angry people say stuff like, well, that's just how I am. You don't, you push my buttons. That's just the way I am. You a lie. You're a lie because you can be talking to your wife, cussing, ranting, punching holes in the drywall, throwing a fit like you are a three-year-old toddler, and your phone rings, and you go, hello? Right? Right? Hello, this is Jerry's Tire and Auto, yes. Yes, this is the happiest place to get your car repaired. Yes, it is. What can we help you with? And your wife is sitting there short-circuiting going, who is this person? How did that happen? Or, bless God, y'all having one of them knock-down drag-outs and you look down and it's Pastor Mitchum. Well, hello, Pastor. How are you? Yes, I'm blessed today. So it's not that you, well, that's just the way I am. You're a liar. You can control it. You just choose not to. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25 says this, Don't befriend angry people, or you will learn to be like them. In other words, if you're around angry people, they're training you to be like them. You ever been around somebody? Again, uh, eyes up here, buddy. You ever been around somebody, and every time you leave their presence, you're just mad and don't know why? You just, you're gritting your teeth, your heart rate's up a little bit, you feel like you got, need to take blood pressure medication, you're like, why do I always feel like that? It's because they're training you to be like them. And Proverbs says, stay away from them kind of people. If they're in your cave, next, next is the garbage collector. This is the person who loves to tell you about everybody else. The Bible calls them a real nice term, a gossip. The Bible says that <laughs> they, <laughs> they carry mischief. And, and it's one of the things, by the way, that God hates. We're going to get into that a little deeper as this series moves on. Um, gossipers get great pleasure. What's the German word, schadenfreude? They get great pleasure out of other people's misery. Yeah, yeah, they, they love to run tell that every time they get a little juicy nugget. Can I give you a little life lesson? This is free advice. Anybody that will talk about somebody else to you will talk about you to somebody else. So the best thing you can do is shut that down and realize because people will tell you who they are. When they run to you and every time they see you in the cave, they're like, did you hear about Scott? Did you? Did I tell you the latest on Cindy? If that's their conversation, you know good and well when they leave your presence, they're, they're going into somebody else's cave carrying your news to them. So the best thing you can do is not give them any ammunition to use against you. I've said it for years. It's just us here, right? I don't think you're going to come take my license. Everybody in this room knows folks that are two-faced. 
It's extremely optimistic to say some folks are just two-faced. I've met some people who had three, four, maybe half a dozen. It depends on what room they're in, who they're talking to, what their environment is. It's very optimistic to say some people are just two-faced. Last but not least, the, person, the characters you meet in the cave is the tempter. And you're going to say, oh, that's the devil. No, you'd be wrong. This is the person that isn't like the devil, and that's how they get close to you. If they were like the devil, you would lock them out. But these are the kind of people that subtly tempt you to do either what you said you didn't want to do, or you know God doesn't want you to do. Maybe they're the kind of people who try to get you to take the the relationship to places that you know God's not pleased with. Maybe they're party goers, and they're always saying, ah, come on, come on, just one time, let's go. And they're always trying to subtly get you to compromise. This is going to be very important in our series moving forward because David's biggest issue was his inability to say no to compromise. That's the reason I put the tempter at the end of this because it's a building block for future sermons. I want to give you some warning signs that you are under the influence of corruption. Okay? If you have to compromise your morals for that relationship, that relationship is wrong. I got two people in agreement with me this morning. If you're in a relationship and your relationship with God is suffering because of it, that relationship is wrong. If you feel like you feel less conviction than you used to, not because you got closer to God, but because you're praying less, going to church less, worshiping less, that relationship is dangerous for you. If you have people in your life that are not attached to that relationship who love you and are warning you that you have changed since that relationship came on the scene, You are in dangerous territory. So pay attention to the warning signs. You don't believe me. Peter was a very close friend of Jesus. Say yes. And when Jesus was explaining to Peter and the disciples that he was going to die and be taken away from them, you know what Peter said? Peter rebuked Jesus. I mean, mean, Peter, for all Peter's flaws, (laughs) Peter would be the pastor standing up telling the government about themselves. Because Peter, Peter has some gall now. Peter looked at Jesus and said, I don't like you saying that you're going to die. That hurts my feelings. You need to quit talking like that. And Jesus did not help Peter find a safe space. Peter, you devil, shut your trap. He rebuked Peter. He called him the devil. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You know why? Because what he said was, what you want for me is not what God wants for me, and I have to obey God rather than your relationship. We have a relationship, Peter. We're buddies. We're pals. We're friends. But I have to choose between pleasing you and pleasing God. I've got to please God, even if it means that I have to rebuke you. And last but not least, because I saved this one for last, the raging narcissist. Some of y'all are laughing about this. The raging narcissist. I think I remember an old Carly Simon song that says, uh, You're so vain, you probably think this sermon's about you. (laughs) 
Welcome to that church. The raging narcissist is always a victim. They never seem to move forward because they're always reminding you of what you did to them and they never take responsibility for what they did to you. They never accept wrongs that they did, but they are constantly reminding you of every time you have wronged them. They are oblivious. It is impossible for a narcissist to even realize that other people suffer too. All they ever do is complain about how bad life is for them, how bad people treat them, and they are incapable of realizing you hurt too. Other people hurt as well. These are the kind of people that find you in your cave. Why did you run into the cave? You were running from the enemy. You were escaping. You chose the wrong destination. But they found you in your cave, and they know you're vulnerable, and they know you're insecure, and they feed off of vulnerable, insecure emotions. It's like a moth to flame. If you ever want to find a narcissist, find out who they're dating or who they're married to and see if they're insecure. See if they have been battling and they have become weak because that's the kind of people a narcissist attaches themselves to. Because they feel like and you feel like you can't live without them. Which brings me to my last message for you this morning. Jesus loved everybody, yes? And a lot of people in 2023 wouldn't like Jesus as their pastor. Not just because of the way he preached, but because of the way he handled his relationships. See, Jesus preached to thousands, the multitudes, right? But then he had a ministry team of 70. Then he had a group of disciples of 12. Circle gets smaller. Then when he would really go, like when he went into, uh, up on the mountain of trans, tra- transfiguration or he went into the garden to pray, he didn't take all 12. He didn't take Judas. He didn't take Thomas, he didn't take Bartholomew, he took three. Now y'all wouldn't, like, y'all wouldn't like Pastor Jesus because Pastor Jesus don't invite everybody to every party. Pastor Jesus had three, and he had 12, and he had 70 that he used in ministry. He preached to everybody, he loved everybody, but he kept his circle small. How did Jesus decide who was going to be in his circle? I'm glad you asked. Two things. Or he prayed and he was deliberate. He prayed about who to let in. And he was deliberate with his standards. I know we ain't shouted this morning. I, I did that on purpose. If you're single and you're a child of God, what is there like seven somebody? Correct. It's like 7 billion people on the planet. Is that what we're up to now? Like between 7 and 8 billion people? You honestly think that one joker's the only guy? There's a bunch of them out there, girl. Fella, there's a lot of ladies out there. They call them uh, fish in the sea. They, they, they everywhere. They everywhere. Don't get fixed on the wrong one because you think there's not another one. And you ought to have some standards, child of God. Which, out of 7, 8 billion people, you can eliminate a lot of them right off the bat. 
You don't have to give them a test drive. You don't have to give them an interview. You can just tell them right away, oh, you don't love Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, I, I, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time. While I'm messing with Mr. Mess Around, I'm missing out on Mr. Right that God could be bringing to my door because I got distracted because I wasn't prayerful and I wasn't deliberate. So your circles need to get smaller, not bigger. Oh, you don't believe me? Let, let me show you the scriptures because if you're sharing your life with people, it's a mission. It's not a moment. Your life's going somewhere. They should have the same values you got. They should be heading the same direction you're heading. And if you're going to get out of this cave, you're going to need some people that's going to help you get out, not people that are miserable and want to stay stuck. The trap that will keep you in the cave is Proverbs 27 and 7. If you have had enough to eat, even honey doesn't taste good. But if you are really hungry, you will eat anything. Lonely, vulnerable people are starving. And they're willing to eat anything. So the enemy finds you in the cave and starts sending all of this temptation. Do you remember when David was in the cave and he said nobody cared about him? Why are you going to stay in the cave with a bunch of people that you know don't care about you? Why are you not going to recognize what their mission is, which is to get you off track? Why are you going to stay stuck in a cave with people that are not heading where you're heading? If you keep reading Psalm 142, verses 5 through 7, it says this. Then I pray to you, O Lord. I say you are my place of refuge. You are, you are all I really want in life. Hear my cry, for I am very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. And then verse 7 says this. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. The godly will crowd around me, for you are good to me. In other words, church, if you get yourself out of the cave you ran into, you will start attracting a different crowd of people. If you look around your crowd and you say, man, this is a bunch of sorry skunks right here. What do you think they're attracted to? Why do you think they're your friends? Why are they on your call list? Why are they the first people at your house, bumming off of you, sucking the life out of you. Why, why do you think you're with them? Because these are the people you're attracting. Get out of the cave, you'll attract a whole new group of people. you got to read the warning signs because these are the kind of people that you've got in your life. And the reason you've got them is because they found you in a cave. So look at your neighbor and do me a favor because I'm done. Look at your neighbor and say, you've been in this cave long enough. Yeah, you've been in this cave long enough. I know the reason you ran there. I, real, I realize it because we've all done it. Listen, we here at Promise of Victory have three core values. We, we believe that everybody's somebody, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. The, re the reason we stress that and we say that and we repeat that is because we want you to know you are among a group of losers. We're all misfits. We've all done it wrong. These are your people. 
we've all started going one direction and went the wrong way. We've all made the wrong decisions. We've all been running from the enemy and ran into the wrong cave. We all know where you are because we were there first. The graffiti on the wall of that cave, I wrote that. You got in the back of that cave and it said, loser was here, that was me. That was me, I did that. Last time I visited, I was in the same cave. I found the same people. Where do you think the sermon came from? So you have to understand, yes, being vulnerable is dangerous. Yes, being hungry is dangerous. Yes, being, being, being on the run from the enemy, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's emotional, whether it's your health, whatever it is, being on the run from the enemy is the most dangerous and vulnerable place that you can be because it causes you to make rash, quick decisions because you do it alone. And you shouldn't do it alone. You know what the book of Proverbs also teaches us? There is safety in a multitude of counselors. One of the biggest benefits of being in a church is that there are people that's just like you that has been in that cave that won't judge you for being in a cave because we have also been there. And we can look at you and say, I know the way out, follow me. Like, I've been in the cave. I, I, if I'm going somewhere, I want to follow somebody. I don't want them to just give me directions. The best way for me to get there is if you show me because you've been there already. And I want you to, to know there's people in this building that have been in that cave. And we know what it took to get out. So we say, come on, follow me. Let's go. I, I know the way out. And th th this is why you need to come to church. This is why you need to get connected to church. This is why it's not just something you do on Sunday, but it's a fellowship of a brotherhood. Because... We're in this together. Iron sharpens iron. And we can show you the way out of it. Because, hold on, hold on. If Jesus don't come back real soon, pretty soon you'll have to remind me how you got out because I'll be in that cave. And, and because I helped you, you can help me next time. The enemy doesn't want you to hook up with other people that are godly and are counselors. He wants to find you alone, distracted, disoriented, on the run, vulnerable, and full of depression and chaos and confusion. Enough of that. Enough of that. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Because there's safety in a multitude of counselors. If you're about to make a decision, you need good, godly brothers and sisters that you can run the idea past and say, what do you think about this? And let them have the ability to speak into your life and say, I think that's a terrible idea. I don't think God's in that at all. Or, I think you should do that. I think you, and as a matter of fact, I won't just tell you, I'll help you. Because I believe the Lord's in this. We need one another. And that only comes through real vulnerability and relationship. See, I didn't have time to get to this this morning. If you're not vulnerable in the right places, you'll become too vulnerable in the wrong places. So if you're not vulnerable in the house of God where it's safe, you'll become vulnerable in a bedroom where you'll become vulnerable at a workstation. You'll become vulnerable at a bar because you weren't vulnerable where God could help you and fill the voids. So every person in this room we need, we need each other. I, it's going to be a little bit weird for some of y'all because y'all don't really know me. I apologize. 
But I, I'm going to ask everybody if they would stand. Just stand. And we've been doing this a lot lately in this series, and I, I feel like that this is probably the culmination of it. Why we've been doing it. Because it's important for you to know how vulnerable you are when the enemy finds you alone. But you're not alone. Like, look around. Look, smile at somebody. Let them know you got the joy of the Lord. You wasn't baptized upside down in pickle juice last night. Yeah, yeah, the Lord loves you. He's got a plan for your life. And that plan is to prosper you. It's to bring you out of discouragement, deposit you into encouragement, bring you out of cursing, deposit you into blessing. That's, that's what the Lord does. And sometimes He just uses His people to get that message across. So I know I preached a long time this morning. At this point, I'm way past apologizing for it. It's just who I am. I, I love you in the Lord, but I just get going. I don't know how to quit. But... Um, <laughs> I'm sure Luke Hodges will have mercy on you next week you'll feel like a car that just got their tires rotated next week you'll look down and say oh man this was quick but I want you before you leave I want you to make some human contact some of you won't be comfortable with with like praying with each other or hugging each other that's fine you can pat somebody on the shoulder. You can shake somebody's hand. But I want you to have human contact because here's what I've been praying before we ever got into this room. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is going to use that human contact to reinforce the word that I just deposited in you. That you're not in this by yourself. That, that there's people here that will pray with you. we got a whole prayer team here. And if you need prayer, they will pray with you right now. Like if you're sick or you're discouraged or you're like, you know what, I'm in that cave and I need to get out of that cave. You need to find one of our prayer, uh, uh, prayer team members and they will help pray with you. Because guess what? They've been in a cave too. They know what it's like. So I'm, I'm going to dismiss you and you can leave or you can hang around. But before you leave, I, I want to encourage you. Have some human contact. Find somebody or a whole bunch of somebodies. And I want you to shake their hand. If they're comfortable and you're comfortable, you can hug their neck. Maybe just pat them on the shoulder. Tell them the Lord loves them. Jesus loves you. I was glad to see you today. Something. But I want you to have some human contact because I've asked the Holy Spirit to supernaturally infuse that touch with the word I preach to you and convince you to get out of that cave. Because listen to me, you've been in that cave long enough. Is there anybody ready to come out? Is there anybody ready to come out of their cave? You've been there long enough, friend. As a matter of fact, that could be your opening line. You could walk around this room and just tell people that you see. Say, we've been in this cave long enough. How about, how about, how about you show me the way out or I'll show you the way out. God bless you this morning, Promise Victor. I love you.